smoked barbecue year-round, local products and catering. Now offering takeout. NeverSinkGeneralStore.com And from listeners like you. Trying to make it real compared to what... I had reasoned this out in my mind. I would fight for my liberty so long as my strength lasted. And if the time came for me to go, the Lord would let them take me. I can't die but once. This week on the Janice Haddon Show, we pay tribute to the greatest Underground Railroad conductor of them all, Harriet Tubman. We're on the road taking a path through history to Auburn, New York, visiting the home where she lived and where her legacy lives on. Harriet Tubman, she really is the ultimate freedom fighter. She is the greatest example that we can have, particularly as black women, of what it means to free yourself and then, of course, go back and free other people. First, the news. From NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. Hurricane Henri is forecast to make landfall around New York's Long Island tonight or tomorrow. But before that, National Hurricane Center Director Ken Graham says dangerous storm surge and hurricane conditions are expected in parts of the northeast U.S. beginning late tonight. Any one of these areas, you just have to be ready. And you got the winds, you got the saturated soil, that means you can topple some trees. Big time power outages, got to be ready for that. And those trees blocking some of the roads, treacherous travel associated with this storm. Henri is on track to be New England's first direct hurricane in three decades. Pentagon officials say the U.S. military is fighting against time and space to evacuate more people from Afghanistan. They say 17,000 people have been evacuated so far, including some 2,500 Americans. Britain is urging President Biden to extend the August 31st deadline for evacuations. As Vicki Barker reports from London, as many as 6,000 British and Afghan citizens cleared for travel have yet to get out. Amanda Dawson is a primary school principal in Nottingham. Two of her students, sisters aged five and eight, are trapped in Afghanistan. They're UK nationals, but Dawson is also trying to arrange evacuations for their Afghan family members, telling the BBC. One of them's had a direct threat uh, from the Taliban that once the security forces have left, he'll have his head chopped off. The UK has said it will take up to 20,000 Afghan refugees, but that's over five years. It's the days leading up to that August 31st deadline that may prove the most crucial. For NPR News, I'm Vicki Barker in London. Russia's last independent TV news channel has now been added to a list of so-called foreign agents. As Charles Maines reports from Moscow, it's the latest in a series of moves by Russian authorities that target critical journalism in the country. When it launched in 2007, Dost, or TV Rain, branded itself the optimistic channel, but it soon merged lifestyle features with quality news, political talk shows, and coverage of anti-government protests. Now Russian authorities have added the channel to a growing list of media foreign agents, a designation the Kremlin says identifies foreign-funded organizations engaged in politics, but that critics argue is used to silence independent journalism. Foreign agent media must meet onerous requirements to identify content as foreign-funded. Several outlets have opted to shut down as advertisers fled a label many associate with espionage. TV Rain's management says they'll appeal the decision in court. Charles Maine's NPR News, Moscow. This is NPR. This is Radio Katsko. I'm Liam Mayo from the River Reporter. Governor Tom Wolf announced Tuesday that 80% of Pennsylvania's 18 and older population have received their first dose of COVID-19 vaccination. Pennsylvania ranks ninth for first dose it administered and fifth for total doses administered among all 50 states, with 64% of the 18 and older population being fully vaccinated. Governor Wolf urged Pennsylvanians to continue to be vaccinated, saying, quote, As COVID-19 variants spread throughout the country, it is vitally important that partially vaccinated individuals receive their second dose, and individuals who haven't been vaccinated get the vaccine today, unquote. According to a recent Department of Labor and Industry report, Pennsylvania's unemployment rate was down three-tenths of a percentage point over the month to 6.6% in July. 
This marks the fifth consecutive month in which the Commonwealth's unemployment rate has dropped. It is currently down 6.4 percentage points below its July 2020 level. Largest job gains occurred in the leisure and hospitality sectors, which added back 85,000 jobs over the past 12 months. And the Pennsylvania Game Commission recently expanded regulations protecting deer, elk, and other cervids from the spread of chronic wasting disease. Hunters are prohibited from importing high-risk parts or materials from deer harvested, taken, or killed in any state or county outside Pennsylvania, and from moving high-risk parts between certain areas within Pennsylvania. For more information, you can view the department's full press release at www.riverreporter.com. That's www.riverreporter.com. This news roundup is produced in partnership with The River Reporter. I'm Liam Mayo. Trying to make it real compared to what... Today on the Janice Adams Show, we honor the life and legacy of one of the world's greatest human rights champions, a woman who put her life on the line to confront slavery, to uphold the rights of every individual to God-given freedoms. It was a time in America, a topsy-turvy forebearer of her own, when acts everyone knew to be wrong were right, and what was right was made illegal. When slavery and greed, backed by state-sponsored terror, corrupted this colonial foothold turned nation for 246 years. When bounties were put on people's heads for stealing themselves from its clutches. When millions of Americans spouted and touted hypocritical, patriotic, and religious slogans while denying the humanity of others. One woman, barely five feet tall, courageously, selflessly, daringly towered above the fold. Revered as General Tubman, beloved as 19th century America's Moses, Harriet Tubman put her life where her heart told her she needed to be. I can only die once, said she. Go down, Moses, way down. An internationally renowned Shiro, Mrs. Tubman conducted 19 undercover missions all in the dead of winter, to personally liberate hundreds of people from slavery. First, she freed herself, navigating a 100-mile clandestine route from Maryland's eastern shore to freedom in 1849. Then, over the next 16 years, she risked that hard-won freedom to rescue her parents, other family members, total strangers— when civil war broke out, she commandeered her expertise as a spy and scout for Union forces. On June 2, 1863, she marshaled her genius as a strategist to become the first woman to ever lead American troops in battle, deeds for which she earned and later begrudgingly got a military pension for her service. And that was just the first half of an extraordinary life lived in the cause of liberty and justice for all. Wade in the water, God's gonna trouble the water. Grace Angela Henry conjures the voice of Harriet Tubman, legendary Shiro who made 19 undercover raids all in the dead of winter, to personally rescue hundreds of people from bondage. It wasn't me. It was the Lord. I always told him, I trust you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me. And he always did. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. I was the conductor of the Underground Railroad for eight years. And I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track, and I never lost a passenger. I've heard Uncle Tom's cabin read, and I tell you Mrs. Stowe's pen hasn't begun to paint what slavery is as I have seen it at the far south. 
I've seen the real thing, and I don't want to see it on no stage or in no theater. In my dreams and visions, I seemed to see a line, and on the other side of that line were green fields and lovely flowers and beautiful white ladies who stretched out their arms to me over the line, but I could not reach them nohow. I always fell before I got to the line. I think slavery is the next thing to hell. If a person would send another into bondage, he would, it appears to me, be bad enough to send him into hell if he could. I grew up like a neglected weed, ignorant of liberty, having no experience of it. I never had anything good, no sweet, no sugar, and that sugar right by me did look so nice. And my mistress's back was turned to me while she was fighting with her husband, so I just put my fingers in the sugar bowl to take one lump. And maybe she heard me, for she turned and saw me. The next minute she had the rawhide down. I had two sisters carried away in a chain gang. One of them left two children. We were always uneasy. He calls me by the thunder. I had crossed the line. I was free, but there was no one to welcome me to the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land. Now I've been free, I know what a dreadful condition slavery is. I have seen hundreds of escaped slaves, but I never saw one who was willing to go back and be a slave. I had reasoned this out in my mind. I would fight for my liberty so long as my strength lasted, and if the time came for me to go, the Lord would let them take me. I can't die but once. There are two things I've got a right to, and these are death or liberty. One or the other I mean to have. It appears like my heart goes flutter, flutter, and then they may say, Peace, peace as much as they like. I know it's going to be war. Never wound a snake. Kill it. Every great dream begins with a dreamer. Always remember, you have within you the strength, the patience, and the passion to reach for the stars to change the world. I'm so glad trouble don't last away. Per director for my board of directors, picture taking is not allowed in the house. Also, I will be using two terms interchangeably, and those two terms are slaves and enslaved. And the reason I do that is because no matter what you've heard, no one is born a slave. Everyone is born free, and then they are enslaved by the people or society in which they lived. Last but certainly not least, it's almost impossible for me to give you a thorough history of Harriet's 90-plus years in 25 minutes. What I'm going to do is use the bottom half of this timeline, go through some of the events on the timeline, and in the process of doing that is my hope I would answer 99.9% .9 of your questions. But if by chance there's still something burning in your heart, I'll address your questions at the end of the orientation. Harriet was born around 1822 in a little place called Poplar Neck, Maryland. But she was raised in a place called Bucktown, Maryland, which was in the city of Cambridge over near the, the eastern shore of Maryland near the Chesapeake Bay area. When she was born, she was one of nine children, born to Harriet Green and Benjamin Ross. Also, when she was born, her name was not Harriet, as we know her today. Her name was actually Araminta Ross, and they called her Minty for short. When she was very young, there were some things about her life she liked and some things she did not like. And one of the things she did not like was the fact that young children, sometimes as early as age five and six, were sent off to other plantations to do work. And normally, that routine was worse than it was on their home plantation. Minty had been hired out on several occasions, and many times she was whipped so brutally that she ended up carrying scars on her back and neck for the rest of her life. 
And of course, she did not like that. Some of the things that she was made to do was watch the homes for the watch the slave master's children. Sometimes she would have to clean the house and things of that sort. And the worst thing she liked was the worst thing she hated was having to set muskrat traps in the middle of the wintertime in the lakes and streams. It has been said that several times she almost lost her life because of the colds that she had developed from those incidents. Well, when she was young, her mother would allow her to watch the younger children. And so one night she was watching one of her little brothers, and that joker would not go to sleep. So she found some fat back bacon. You know what fat back is, don't you? Put it on the coals, allowed it to cook and cool. After it had cooked and cooled, she gave it to her brother to suck on like a pacifier. Eventually, he fell asleep. But when her mother came home, she was scared out of her wits because all she could see was this long piece of meat hanging out of her boy's mouth. She thought Araminta had pulled a boy's tongue out of his head. That was one of the funny things she remembers. When she was a teenager, there was an event where a slave had escaped off the plantation and had run away. The overseer was sent to bring him back, and they cornered him in a dry goods store there in Bucktown. And at the same time, Minty and others were headed to the same store, and when she got there, the overseer commanded that she help him tie this slave up so that he could return him to the plantation. Of course, she didn't want to because she believed that everyone had a right to be free. But she was wise enough to know that if she didn't do this, she'd be in trouble. So as she was going to help him tie the slave up, the slave jumped, broke loose, bam, ran out the store. Uh, the, the overseer picked up a two-pound metal weight from one of the old-fashioned weighing scales and threw it at the slave. Missed the slave. But it hit Araminta in the head with such an impact that it actually cut off a small piece of the scarf she was wearing and embedded it in her skull. Knocked her out. She was in a uh, semi-coma for a couple of days, and after coming out of that coma with very little medical attention, they just put her right back out into the field to work. Story is, sun was hot, skull opened back up, blood and sweat ran down her face so much so that she could hardly, breathe, hardly see while she was working on the plantation. Created a problem for her that they used to call fainting spells and blackouts, but today they call it temporal lobe epilepsy which simply meant that from time to time she would be going through her normal process, blank out of consciousness, come back into consciousness. Sometimes when she would blank out, she'd have epileptic seizures and start shaking. She had this for the rest of her life. And many people wonder, how in the world was she able to do all the things that she did on the Underground Railroad with such an injury as that? The way she said it was that during those moments when she had her blackout spells were moments when she felt as though the Spirit of God was speaking directly to her spirit, giving her direction and visions on where to go and when to go. Some say this may be one of the reasons why she was never captured or lost into the passengers that, that were with her while she was traveling on the Underground Railroad. I'd like to think she had divine intervention. <laughs> Of course, as she got older, as most of us do, she fell in love. Now, I don't know if you've been in love, but I will not ask for a show of hands today, all right? She fell in love with a free black man, and his name was John Tubman. And eventually they were married. But just because they were married did not mean that she would automatically gain her freedom. It just simply meant that with her owner's permission, they could spend time together, but she would have to remain on the plantation to do the work given to her by her owner. And of course... Araminta did not like those arrangements. We also believe that it was around this time that she decided to change her name from Araminta to Harriet after her mother. Some say she did this out of right, as a rites of passage. Now that she was grown and on her own, she could choose her own name, so she chose the name of her mother. And that's why we know her today as Harriet Tubman. When we come back, more stories from the life and legacy of Harriet Tubman. Why? Harriet Tubman really is the ultimate freedom fighter. She is the greatest example that we can have, particularly as black women, of what it means to free yourself and then, of course, go back and free other people. More on The Janice Adams Show after the break. Kit here from Something Old, Something New. Join me Sunday night at 7 for the finale of Chandelier Week on Radio Catskill. 
We'll hear the Alethea Piano Trio Sunset Pavilion Concert along with a conversation with their cellist, Juliette Erlin. Sunday night at 7 on Radio Catskill. You're listening to Radio Catskill. Public radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. On air, online, on your smartphone, and on your smart speaker. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. From river to river, mountain to mountain. We are Radio Catskill. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our celebration of the life and legacy of Harriet Tubman, one among the world's greatest human rights champions. Revered for her work on the Underground Railroad, she put her life on the line to outwit slavery by leading its victims to freedom and linked arms and sisterhood for women's rights. Here at the historic Harriet Tubman home in Auburn, New York, Reverend Paul Gordon Carter has worked to preserve the home, Tubman's life and legacy, for 29 years. What brought him to the home? Well, what brought me here was Harriet Tubman, uh, bottom line. But I was a pastor in Washington, D.C., and the bishop of that area was also the same bishop of this area, uh, Bishop J. Clinton Hogarth. And he asked me if I'd be willing to come here to the Tubman House and get this on the market for tourism. We came here 27 years ago. How much of her story did you know before you came? Probably the most I knew about her story at that point was just the fact that she was a woman who had helped free those who were enslaved. And at that time, we was told that she freed about 300 people, made about 19 trips, and she had gone back and forth to the South to free people and bring them to the North. And that many of the plantation owners and slaveholders were trying to capture her because she was creating chaos by freeing people and taking their working force to the north with her. Once you came and became invested in the story, what has been your greatest surprise in terms of what you learned? The greatest surprise of what I've learned as it relates to Harriet Tubman's life was the fact that she was the only woman of any color to ever lead troops of men into battle during the Civil War. I never heard that from anyone else. And when I found out about it, I said, she must have been some kind of awesome for them to put that much trust in her and revere her the way they did. And the first American woman to lead troops in battle, period. Period, yes. So she she was General Tubman. And your surprise in terms of what you have come to realize that other people don't know about Harriet Tubman. What they don't know about Harriet Tubman is that she ended her life in Fleming near Auburn and she had 32 acres of land that she was able to purchase over a period of years and she was able to put it to good use taking care of other people. Matter of fact she was so Uh, so concerned about other people that she would have literally given her blouse off her own back to make sure somebody else was comfortable. And your surprise of what they do and do not know about enslavement, period? It goes back to the whole idea that many people coming in here and they think that because people were born on plantations that they were born a slave. And I've always had to try to tell them and let them know that no one is born a slave. We are all born free, and then we are enslaved by the people or society which we live in. No one comes into the world slave. When you tell them that, how do they respond, the average person? Uh, Some respond with a nod, and it's sort of like the light goes on, and they realize that, oh, you're right about that. But then you have some who become indignant because they say, well, they were, they were enslaved. They were in an enslaved environment. And when they were born, they were born enslaved. I say, yes, they were born into slavery, but they were not born slaves. So sometimes there's been discussions about it. Mm-hmm. Children who come, do you get a difference in response between children who come and adults? 
Yes, we do. Uh, the children seem to be more excited about Harriet's life and just the mere fact that they live in an era and an area where they can go visit Harriet Tubman because this is a person that they may read about in a book uh, and now they can actually come on the property and take pictures in her house or walk through the building and read more information on them. And when children come here, especially with school groups, we do something a little special that we don't do with the adults. Uh, Christine is very good with working with the children, and she will have them actually take part in the presentation. So they will come up, and one would be Harriet Tubman and her brothers whenever she's bringing them out of the South. And so as we go through a, a little, uh, sort of like a little skit with them, so they really are able to feel it. And then their, their peers get to see them take part in it. And then the next year when they come back, then the other kids say, I remember when I was here. I want to be in it this year. So it, they, 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 they just seem to realize the importance of what Harriet Tubman did. And the adults. I'm sure there's a range. There is a range, and it goes from those who, quote, unquote, think they know it all. <laughs> and then there are those who had no idea that Harriet did the things that she did and didn't even know Harriet until they actually saw a sign on the throughway and decided to come here and find out about it. And now that Harriet has become this bigger-than-life person with the National Park Service and the $20 bill and all these other things, uh, people act like, oh, I've been knowing her all the time. So we get situations with people coming in crying sometimes. Uh, I've had people who have stopped at the gate and have taken their shoes off because they felt as though this was hollow ground. And so they would walk in. I've had people crawl on their knees to the house. Uh, people have come and done rituals where they did libations at the house in honor of the ancestors. So it, it does rain. We've had uh, Tibetan monks come all the way here on a trip to D.C., and they knew they had to stop here because they knew of the legacy of Harriet. We've had African priests who have come and actually have, on the parking lot, had their, their midday prayer on the middle of the parking lot, you know, and bowing down to God and giving homage to Harriet. Islamic prayer and the call to worship. Mm -hmm. Okay, and we've had we've had you know governors come through, lieutenant governors, President Clinton and Mrs. Clinton were here, and, and others have been through here, and so the, it's it's a wide range: musicians, artists, poets, I mean, all kinds of people have been through here. So the response is different with every person based on what they have learned up to the point that they get here. With the house now being part of the National Park Service, it's it's long been a historic site. But what is going to change here? What what do we have to look forward to over the next few years? You will see the property being upgraded. Uh, the National Park Service, of course, has purchased the church that Harriet Tubman attended and the parsonage. So that's pretty much where their headquarters would be. And at some point, they will start to bring in rangers to be here on the property. The interpretation, the way the interpretation is presented will change. I was here in 1989, and one of my daughters made the comment that what impressed her was that when she went to Harriet Tubman's home, stood in her bedroom, she said that the house was so sparse, but for a person who'd been through all that she had been through, my daughter recognized that everything in that room was Mrs. Tubman's. It belonged to her and that it had taken, I've forgotten how she said it, but much more than money to just buy it. Uh, much of the furniture that's in the house today is furniture that was placed there as period piece furniture, and it's placed there. Most of it is over 100 years old, but most of it was not there because of the way the property was left in the late 1920s once it was closed down. And in the late 1920s when it was closed down, whatever furniture was in the house was probably taken by the last residents who lived here. So most of that furniture was gone. And then if you've ever seen the picture, and I don't think you did because I, I found the picture after I got here, but there's a picture of the house in the early 30s where it was stripped bare and uh, there's nothing there. The clapboard has been removed off of it. And they say that people came and took the clapboard off the house because in the early 30s, people were still coming out of the Depression. 
And so wood was of a premium to them. And with no one here to stop them, they pretty much gutted the house. In the 1930s, people were going into the Depression because it's 1929 that the crash happened. So this is the, the upswing of the Depression. But I understand what you mean about it because in so many historical houses, they don't necessarily com- have complete continuity from the time the person dies and leaves the home to the point where it becomes a museum. But it was what it represented, mm-hmm. I think, for my daughter to realize that my daughter came from a house that was well appointed. But this woman had gone through all of this and what it represented, each piece symbolically must have had so much meaning to her because of what it took her to get it. And I think that is an important thing for a young person to understand. We came in 1989 to see this house. That was when we came through. And so I would ask you, you come in 1990. What has changed? I can see it, so I thank you for what has changed. But I'd like in your own words to talk about what the house was like when you arrived and what we are seeing actually now. Well, when we came, they actually had purchased her brick residence, which no one knew was hers for many years because the family who purchased it in 1914 had it until 1990. And they kept it kind of silent until they were ready to sell it back to the AME Zion Church because they didn't want people coming in trying to tour it or take bricks off of it and things. Uh, So there were no scheduled tours here. There was no program here. Since I've been here, there's been signage. There's been a regular program. This building here that we're in now used to be the multi-purpose center and it was dedicated in 84 but it was just a building where they used they had the pilgrimage or people would rent it for weddings or banquets and luncheons but as you can see now you on the radio can't see but as you can see now it is filled with just information about the life of Harriet Tubman with all of the plaques and the boards on the wall and this timeline that goes from the beginning of her life to the very end of her life so I've seen things change dramatically since I've been here over the last 27 years. Going forward, how would you like it to change? How would you like it to grow? Let me put it that way. I would like to see it be a place where people can come and actually sit down and study and research the life not only of Harriet Tubman, but others like her who were willing to put their life on the line. Having a facility here that is top-notch with all the high-tech things that you need to do research and make it a place that people will cherish because they understand that something unique happened here on this property. Harriet's life was changed. The people in this community's lives were changed. And this country was changed because Harriet Tubman was in this area and walked on these grounds. So I want people to be able to come from all over the world, not just locally or nationally, but all over the world. And when they come, have a sense of awe that they have, don't mean to say it like this, but they have come to Mecca. And this is where Harriet was. It is now really a full-fledged visitor center and for educational outreach. Mm-hmm. We talked about it when it will come under the National Park Service, but in your own mind, because you have squired it through this period of time, you shepherded it, what do you want it to represent for generations who, who come going forward? I would like to see it be a place where people can come and see how important it is to be not only consistent, but to be tenacious about what it is you believe in. For people to come and know that if you can develop the kind of faith that Harriet had when she had nothing and didn't know where she was going to end up, but knew that there was a spirit within her that was connected to a God above, that if she just put her trust in him, that he would bring her through. And if you can just imagine the fact that because you're willing to to go through whatever it is you have to go through, and sometimes it means putting your own life on the line, but if you're willing to be that kind of person and believe in what it is that's in your heart, that eventually you would be able to make it through whatever it is. I mean, to have brain surgery without uh, medication, I mean, that's that's ludicrous. <laughs> Nobody does that, but she was willing to do that. So, uh, you know, go ahead. Well, you know, I heard that story, and I had a question about that story. Not that I don't 
believe that she bit the bullet on that one. But I'd say in the last 10, 15 years, there have been major studies by pharma Mm -hmm. to demonstrate the difference in the use of anesthetic for whites versus people of color Mm. to document it. And um, how, in in fact, Du Bois has a section where he refers to someone being amazed that they saw a black person crying. And it was because they had been told that blacks had no souls, blacks had no feeling, and so Mm. why would that happen? And they have found that that was borne out in the treatment. And indeed, we know that black women were essentially the guinea pigs for gynecology. They, um, without anesthetic, without anything, they would just be sliced open by these doctors who, <laughs> doctors, um, who were essentially using their bodies to test their theories on for, for the treatment of white women. So I can't say that it didn't happen. That's the story that comes down. But I also have enough information to question mm-hmm. whether it was that it did not happen or whether or not it wasn't offered because it was very much a thing. You know, we we forget that black doctors didn't have hospital privileges into the 1970s in New York. And I know it for a fact because of what happened when I was about to give birth to my twins. And the, the restrictions on black doctors, even in New York State, as to where they could practice was immense and the treatment was so different uh, by race of of patients. So as more research is done, it's one of the questions that I would put on the table. And and I actually never gave a thought that it would be a black doctor, only because of the work that she had done in Boston. You know, she knew a number of people and so, you know, there probably was a white doctor that somebody had, that she met when she was in there. Maybe they knew something about her background. Again, she was, uh, no, she was n- well known enough that they th- that it was because she was who she was that they may have agreed to perform the surgery, and for somebody else, they may not have agreed to perform the surgery. I don't know, but I do still know that there were these great disparities mm-hmm. in terms of anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can believe that. The downside to a life like Harriet is that you have to filter everything that you read about her based on what you know from the culture. And so when you read things, you, you say, eh. but, you know, sometimes if you don't have proof that, that goes against it, you have to take it the way it is until you can get, as you say, until you can find something else out. When we come back, more on the life and legacy of Harriet Tubman after the break. On this week's Alma Media, how revisiting stories of maligned women from the 90s helps us understand our media and ourselves. Like the case of Lorena Bobbitt. The media is absolutely complicit in the misrepresentation of this story. This is a story not about a cut-off penis. This is a story about a woman who was beaten, she was raped, and it went on for years. On the next On the Media from WNYC. We're back. Today on the Janice Adams Show, we're visiting the Harriet Tubman home in Auburn, New York, where Reverend Paul Carter has worked to preserve the home, Tubman's life and legacy, for 29 years. What I would like to know about Harriet, who was she as a woman? You know, not as this hero that we see, not as this big figure that was a conductor on the Underground Railroad, but how was her life as a woman? in a community like the city of Auburn. I mean, she had to love. She she adopted children, so she had a heart for children, though she had none of her own. That's the part of the story that is still yet to be told about this fantastic woman. She touched a number of people's lives in this community, and very influential people knew her, gave money to her cause, and made sure that she was taken care of in so many different ways. But we don't know what she did from day to day in this city. I mean, when she walked up the street, did she know Mr. So-and-so and John over here and his wife? And did they stop and talk to her? Did she bring vegetables with them? Did they come down and 
you know, pick vegetables from her farm. I mean, those are the kinds of things that we just don't know. And of course, it's hard to know that because she's not here and those people who were around when she was around are no longer here. But those are the kinds of things that would really uh, make her life full circle. I mean, she was a nurse. Did she continue to do nursing things here in the city? You know, she spoke out for women and she spoke out for children, tried to create a home uh, school for young black girls. You know, so so what these missing pieces about her life, who was she when she was not on the Underground Railroad? Who was she when she was not speaking out for women's rights? Who was she when she was just sitting on her front porch, rocking back and forth, having thoughts in her mind about how she made it over? Hobie Romig leads the way at Auburn's historic Fort Hill Cemetery. When I'm up in the cemetery, a lot of times I'll see uh, people wandering through, trying to find their way around, and I'll give them a, a little mini tour. And this is one of the places that I always stop. That is the gravesite of Harriet Tubman's husband, Nelson Charles Davis, the one with the American flag right next to it. He served during the Civil War when colored troops were allowed to fight in the Civil War. They went down to Florida, served at the campaigns down in Florida, ended up in um, Petersburg and Richmond, and his unit was actually present at the uh, signing of the truce of uh, General Lee. You can always find this place because of the enormous evergreen tree, and you can see her right to your right. The impressive evergreen tree that we're under right now was put in uh, shortly after the burial of uh, Harriet over at this section. People have left little gifts for Harriet Tubman. It's really quite something. And then we are also looking at a marker that says it's for William Henry Stewart Sr., brother of Harriet Tubman, 1830 to 1912. So he died the year before her. On the headstone for Harriet Tubman, Harriet Tubman Davis, hyphenated as it said, which is a very simple, unadorned monument standing about three and a half feet tall. It has a crest, a rise to the top of the monument, and there were stones left on it. So I'm wondering if people from the Jewish tradition have also maybe left those stones. And then there are little gifts left at the base of the monument, a china teacup and saucer. There's a little jar. Um, there's something that looks as though it might be piece of a, a necklace or a bracelet. Um, but there are little tributes to Harriet Tubman, this woman who died in 1913 and was born, we think, roughly in 1820. And here in, in due fashion, we are seeing monuments to the gifts she left us. So why do we remember Harriet Tubman and what does she mean to us today? In 2018, the leadership team of Girl Trek, a national health movement that activates black women to be change makers in their lives and communities through walking, set out to meet Tubman on her own turf and terms by following in her footsteps. Here's Sandria Washington. Harriet's Great Escape. This was actually a journey of 100 miles walked over five days, completed by 10 Black women. We started Harriet's Great Escape on the eastern shore of Maryland, and we ended in Wilmington, Delaware. So our route actually traced Harriet Tubman's first great escape. So that was our North Star. That was our intention. We really wanted to literally walk in her footsteps. Harriet Tubman in, in Girl Trek's book, she really is the ultimate freedom fighter. She is the greatest example that we can have, particularly as Black women, of what it means to free yourself and then, of course, go back and free other people. So we're inspired by Harriet's story, you know, first and foremost, because she was fearless, or even in the face of fear, she went out and she did what she needed to do. So, of course, the first time that she escaped, 
she actually did it alone. So, you know, she left behind her husband, family, friends, and she went on this journey by herself. And so this kind of sets the blueprint for the work that Girl Trek does, because we ask women to save yourself from a health perspective. This is something that you can do on your own. You can get out, put on your gym shoes and walk 30 minutes a day, five days a week in order to save yourself. And then, of course, come back for your family and friends, invite them to walk with you as well. So we really use Harriet Tubman's story as a blueprint for that, a blueprint for Black women first saving themselves, but then, of course, coming back for your community and saving them as well. And then we also look at Harriet just as an example of unshakable faith and strength. Like I remember being on the the walk and in my mind, I just kept thinking, how did she do this? How did she find the strength to just keep going hour after hour, day after day? You know, she's wading through water. She, she has slave catchers after her. She has dogs after her. How did she do this knowing the risk involved? And so for us as modern day women, you know, of course, we aren't dealing with the same things that Harriet is dealing with. So we don't necessarily have slave catchers on us. We don't have dogs chasing us. But her story gives us an opportunity to look at what does it look like for Black women in these times to be in captivity? What does it look like for Black women in these times to be in search of freedom? So, you know, we're in bondage to different things. We might be in bondage to poor health. We might be in bondage to low self-esteem, bad relationships, um, low wages, just all these different things that we're facing in our current climate. But at the same time, we have the power within us to free ourselves. We have everything we need. We have that same fire, that same determination, that same strength and grace that women like Harriet Tubman have. We are the daughters of Harriet. And at the end of the day, we were also able to to reach our, our destination and our goal. Once again, we're back at the house with Reverend Carter. As we do this Underground Railroad tour right now, People have shared with us why they think the Underground Railroad story is important in light of contemporary events. And I would ask you that, but I also want to know something very, uh, something more pointed. I've asked people like when I was at the cemetery, was it a segregated cemetery? One of the answers that I got that I actually found rather disturbing was because she was a prominent person, it would not have mattered. And I don't think she would have thought of herself that way. So that answered, and and we know that some of our most prominent people have been treated right to our president in a very racist way. So I would ask you, what is life like for today's Black Auburn? Is it uh, a well-integrated life? Is it a pretty much separate and segregated life? Do we have poverty? You know, I think that even though we don't see slavery in its physical form anymore, slavery is not dead by no spark of the imagination. It has just changed its name. And in the environment we live in now, slavery has taken the role by the way it treats people and how it tries to keep people downcast and away from doing something great with their life. And as you mentioned, every time someone gets shot, again, that's another notch in their handle. And the sad thing about it is that we rise up and scream when it happens, you know, Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter, but then after things cool off because we've not had anybody killed lately, you don't hear much about Black Lives anymore. That said, all the more reason for us to be talking about the Underground Railroad and what it means today. So I ask you in that context, if you could give lessons from the Underground Railroad, from Harriet Tubman's life that you would want people to absolutely never forget today, what would they be? I believe one would be that no matter what the cost, you need to be willing to fight for your freedom. 
and never get up, give up on what you believe because freedom is not free. Somewhere, somehow, someone paid the cost for it. The other thing is life is too important to just allow yourself to live as if you have all the time in the world. It is necessary for us to make sure that we decide right now that we're going to make a difference, not just for ourselves, but for the generations to follow us. Also, the major thing that I think that I've learned from Harriet Tubman's life is no matter what is going on in your life, your life is connected with other people and everything that you can do to make someone else's life better works out for the both of you. This program will be heard ultimately internationally. Over the years, just as the independence of India had inspired the civil rights movement, the civil rights movement became a beacon for people of all walks of life all over the world. What about the fact, though, that right here in this story, people came together across demographic divides mm -hmm. in the cause of one thing, justice. It should apply to the world that because they were able to do that back in those days with as little as they had, we in the society today should be more interested in making that happen, more interested in seeing justice happen for everyone. Because if one person is hurting, then we're all hurting. If one person is being treated unfairly, if there's racism in one community, then that entire city struggles with that. If there is hurt and harm to one family, then people in that community hurt from that. And if the world is going to see things get better, we all have to realize that no one person can take advantage of another person without everyone feeling the pain. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Let my people Go. On an earlier trip to the house, I had the privilege of meeting Harriet Tubman's grandniece, Gladys Bryant. I shared the story with Reverend Carter. Oh, yeah, I know Gladys. Uh, her daughter, Judith Bryant, is still in the area. And actually, she gave some furniture to the house back in the mid-90s from her brother's house, Harriet's brother's house, John Henry Stewart's house. Well, we had the privilege of meeting her, spending the day with her, and because my daughters were with me, as well as the crew for that, for that tour, she brought out to show my daughters two things. One, a picture of herself at six years old at the grave site in 1913. Thank you for verifying that. Yes, yes, it's on the wall over here, too. Yeah, <laughs> we do Good it. to see it again. She brought that picture out um, to share with them, and we all got chills because here we're saying, my goodness, this is a, a woman who, as a little girl, was sitting on Harriet Tubman's lap, mm -hmm. yes, and they were tickling each other's chin, yes, and from our lives to Mrs. Bryant's to hers, my goodness, you're, you're touching someone who touched Harriet Tubman, but most importantly, you're touching someone who knew the story of slavery intimately and who had felt it and felt a person who, as a, a conductor of it on that level, too. And the second thing she, she put in my daughter's hands, the day after the funeral, her mother sat down and wrote handwritten notes, which I hope you have here as well, then. No, we don't have any of those. The day after Mrs. Tubman's funeral. Gladys Bryant's mother sat down and began to literally download memories about this famous aunt. And she put those actual pages in my daughter's hands. I know they exist, or they did exist. And so we could see some of the stories that she had chosen to document at that period of time. I would imagine they're probably still within their family records. Then that would, that would be good. I'd say definitely, because I've never seen them. But I'm sure that they're still within the family records. I will be inclined to believe it. So many families, they've lost documents, this and that. But they have always been aware of who their aunt, grand-aunt was, and they have always honored that tradition, so I'm hopeful. But it, it was, and when I 
tell people that today um, they're struck because here we are in my life to Gladys Bryant's to Harriet Tubman's, you're crossing almost the entire modern history of the United States. That's one thing. And because it makes you very clear that the way some people would like to say, oh, was that was so, no, it wasn't that long ago. And indeed, so much that we are going through right now is the legacy of the fact that for 246 years, that was the law of the land. I'm so glad trouble don't last always. I'm so glad. Trouble don't last always. Oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord, what shall I do? I'm so glad trouble don't last always. Today on the Janice Adams Show, celebrating the life and legacy of Harriet Tubman, with us have been Reverend Paul Gordon Carter, Homie Romick, Sandria Washington, Grace Angela Henry as the voice of Harriet Tubman, and Hattie Winston as the singing voice of Hope. Our thanks to them and to you for joining us today. For more about today's show, including Reverend Carter's welcome at the Tubman House, visit my website, JanusAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. Trying to make it real compared to what... Children are killing frogs. Poor dumb rednecks rolling logs. Tired old ladies kissing dogs. I hate the human love of that stinking mud. I can't use it. Trying to make it real compared to what. what it's for nobody gives us a rhyme or reason half of one doubt they call it treason we're chicken feathers all the way out one good god damn it i'm trying to make it real compared to what Support comes from the Homestead School, Montessori Education, preschool through early college with campuses in Glens Bay and Hurleyville, building the intelligence, creativity, connection, and skills for an ecological future since 1978. Homesteadschool.com. From the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. And from listener donations at wjffradio.org. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Neversink General Store, featuring an award-winning chef, smoked barbecue year-round, local products and catering, now offering takeout, NeversinkGeneralStore.com. And from listeners like you, WJFF Jeffersonville, you're listening to Radio Catskill. 
I'm Aaron Bendich. Join me for Borscht Beat, the Jewish music show on Radio Catskill. Each week I share rare, forgotten, and classic recordings from Jewish musical traditions across multiple generations. From Yiddish folk songs to instrumental klezmer, Yiddish theater, and contemporary performances. It's a grand tour of many musical landscapes. That's Borscht Beat, an hour of Jewish music in the Catskills, Sunday afternoons at 1 on Radio Catskill. Hello and welcome to Staying Home, your revolutionary guide to the Green New Deal. I'm Josh Fox, coming to you from the heart of the Catskills, Radio Catskill, 103.5. 